Let us take our Bibles and turn to the Psalms, Psalm 57, and to record of what may well be the historical occasion for Psalm 57, 1 Samuel 24, those two passages, 1 Samuel 24, and we'll read that first, and then Psalm 57. 1 Samuel 24, as David in the, in the wilderness being pursued by Saul, as he has been for some years and shall be for years succeeding this event, and this uh, occasion of his <clears throat> giving glory to God by refraining from killing Saul himself when he had the opportunity. We're just going to read at this point the first uh, seven verses to get the setting here, which again I agree, though arguably um, Psalm 57 is penned in light of this occasion. The word of God at 1 Samuel 24, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. We'll return to that history after we read now Psalm 57 and hear the exposition of, of that psalm. Psalm 57, <clears throat> to the chief musician set to do not destroy, do not destroy, a miktam or golden psalm, uh, most likely of instruction of David when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God, Most High, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. And there's that word, selah. Uh, perhaps a pause word, some musical uh, notification, 
but right in the middle of the psalm, Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory, awake lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Thus far we read the word of God, the psalm, and the psalm for us to sing. So here we are, beloved, back, and it's summertime, and we're revisiting the psalms as has been our uh, our want in these past several years. We're up to Psalm 57 of the 150 psalms of David and Moses and Asaph and the sons of Korah. Psalms which we are reminded as we reintroduce ourselves to the psalms and maybe introduce for the first time those who've never heard an exposition of the psalms. The psalms which are like a spiritual biography uh, delineating different high and low points and um, uh, plain places, points of every child of God, not a, just of David or Asaph or even Moses, but of every child of God. This word, after all, of the Psalms is not only a portion of the scripture, but it is the word of God that's relevant, applicable, and true for us in every age. Here's a book for us to sing from and to sing along with. And so this is David's psalm here and uh, our psalm, and we need to know as well as we reacquaint ourselves with what psalms are all about, is that these are the psalms of Jesus. They are not only about him, but he is singing them. Now, not to every degree, for example, when the psalmist confesses his sin, but there may very well be uh, something that's taught there of Jesus himself who took on our sin, though not personally was he ever guilty of sin. So he joins with us. And not only that, and, and especially it's really the other way. We join with Jesus when we're singing these psalms, crying out for mercy and glorifying God because he is always the principal singer of the church he is the Savior and the singer. He leads the choir. And so Psalm 57, we, we go to that, and we're met here again with many themes that are common to the Psalms of weal and of woe and of, of ordinary existence of children of God, and, and especially that theme which is very predominant in the Psalms, the theme, the theme of militancy. The psalmist meets with enemies here. And I remember when first becoming acquainted with the psalms as a young Christian, that really struck me. The psalmist was doing battle, and not just against Philistines or, or against Saul, as here, but against himself. And reminds us, does it not, of the true church militant and of every one of us who's come into church here and if you have any sensitivity at all to sin and to the battle, you have come tumbling in and glad for the refuge that assembling together as a church can be. And so there's this and also, of course, the 
the note of victory, the praise that arises from David's lips and from ours. This is a predominant theme of the Psalms. And so here we go to Psalm 57, and the particular setting is a cave. And it may very well be, and this is how I'm going to preach this sermon, that this was the cave uh, at, uh, at Engadai, or uh, however you want to pronounce that, when Saul was pursuing him with 3,000 men. And there is this uh, amazing uh, uh, perspective that's given here in this psalm. The psalm sings from a cave, or when he was in that cave, what his experience was. And uh, again, we're led into something that's part of our reality Sometimes we, are, we find ourselves in caves and enemies are surrounding us and we're almost in the dark, no lights there. And maybe this is familiar to us who are familiar with the pits of which the Bible speaks and the Psalms speak and the confusion that people have. Well, beloved, this cave is for you. This situation of a psalmist is for you to relate to. Maybe when you're not in a cave right now, but when you shall be, and when enemies shall surround you, for certainly they will, even as the Apostle Paul says, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution and maybe have to find yourself in a cave one day. So I want to sing here, sing here, preach here. May my sermon be a song. Uh, this psalm for a cave, and your cave, and my cave, and, and any cave in which we find ourselves. And first of all, those calamities that are all around David, the dangers, the threatenings. And then secondly, the one refuge in that uh, among those enemies and those destructions. And then finally, the blessed aim to which the psalmist um, is led and which he takes. He takes aim at something in this psalm. We'll speak of that presently. It's the praise of God. Calamities, calamities, calamities. That may sound like a drastic word, but this is what is facing David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. The Hebrew word there speaks of destructions or things that could hurt. Hardships, we call them. And certainly these were hardships for David. Here he is anointed by God, children. He's the rightful king of Israel. But there's Saul, who's been anointed by Samuel, in the first place, the people's choice for a king, a king like the other nations. Saul is proving himself to be a king like the other nations, which were all wicked. And he's showing himself to be that in pursuing David, whom he he assesses is a threat to the throne. David has proven himself in battle. He's proven himself popular among the people. He has ten thousands and thousands of followers, and Saul only thousands. So Saul would do away with him. David flees, and this is part of his humiliation as the king. And it doesn't seem like there's any way out anytime soon, and David is facing this. 
And at this time, as we read, there's some 3,000 warriors of Saul that are surrounding David and his men. They don't know where they are. David and his men are in the cave. And this is the occasion where David cries out in the cave for mercy. But this is the calamity, the particular calamity of David or this threat that he experiences here. It's real. It's as real as the the teeth of the enemy and the jaws of a lion. It's as real as their swords and their spears and the arrows that they would aim at David and his men. Real to him. He's tasting and seeing that Saul is bad and the devil is bad and he's against the, the godly David who should be on the throne. The enemy is described in verse 6. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. And then after that, he speaks of these same people as preparing a net for my steps in verse 6, so that David's soul is bowed down, and they have dug a pit before me. These are the enemies described by David and definitely these are dangerous threats if they're described by as lions and men set on fire. The idea being that they're zealous to pursue David, to catch him and to be off with his head. And striking that their teeth are as spears and arrows, their tongue is a sharp sword. This describes the words of these people. They are those who slander David. And as we read in the narrative in 1 Samuel 24, they've slandered David before Saul, saying, David's against you. He's he's out to get you. When David was very far from that, he was simply waiting on the will of God. Saul was listening to this slander and David knew of this. He was being lied about, slandered at every turn by the word of of these devils. Indeed, uh, their tongues were set on fire from hell, as James says, is the problem with sin and the sinful tongue and nature, which uh, listens to the lie and then promotes the lie about God, about people, and about the gospel. Well, these men... That was their great weapon. And often in the Psalms, you'll find this. The psalmist is afraid, as it were, about the words, the slanders, the lies, the evil, the dissension that can, that can upset a family and a church because of restless tongues, and which often sounds well-meaning and, well, I just meant well, but was said wrongly and said at the wrong time in the wrong way. You know how it goes. You know also from your experience as experienced church people you are, it can be that not doctrinal divisions are the problem, but the problem of the tongue is the problem when there are divisions in the church. And so we make little things great by this tongue that's set on fire of hell. And as a world of iniquity, James says in chapter 3, we must as a congregation, be constantly against the evil of the tongue, which involves one mouth, two ears. So listening to evil is also wrong without rebuking the evil and guiding 
the one who has a slanderous tongue in the way he should go. Well, David had this, and it, it reminds us that the warfare of the child of God here, and this is very clear, is a warfare of words. For the child of God stands on the truth, as it is in Jesus Christ, and David certainly did that. The spirit in him was the spirit of Christ, penning the Psalms, after all, and he was a man of God, and he was a man after God's own heart. Isn't that Jesus? The man after God's own heart. And so David stands for the truth, and it's no wonder that Saul and the enemies of truth will attack David with lies, just as at the beginning when the devil said, Yea, hath God said, uh, this, is not, uh, this is what you should not do, and, and called into question the integrity and the fairness of God, so the devil's doing all the time. And he would speak to ministers the lie so that they speak the lie. And he would speak into your hearts through the media or through your own evil, naturally evil hearts all week long so that you're not ready to hear the word and you're just fidgeting in church. You're just not settled down into the truth that the word of God alone is life. And words are at stake here and It's a war of words, and they hurt or they build up. The words we can say inside of ourselves silently, the words that we whisper, the words of Satan, or the word of God, which shall it be? So here you have this this type here, this picture of what it is for all of us, all of these calamities that may come upon us in these difficulties just by being in this world. Here's one of these psalms of the minor chord, as we say, like Psalm 73 or Psalm 130, when David or or the the psalmist bemoans the fact that he's in this pit and he he needs in the bottom of the pit to come to the realization that God is, is there in the pit to forgive sins. But this is our life as children of God. We are God's people. He said, I'm yours, you're mine. That's the word. When we go out the door on Monday to work or when we stay at home with the kids or one child, that's the word we know. And then all of a sudden, no, maybe not so all of a sudden, just creep by creep, we hear the words and the noise like mosquitoes at dusk. It increases and increases, and simply, that's all we can hear is the buzz, the buzz. And we try to rid ourselves of the buzz, but we make it worse by turning on the television or the internet and going to what we think is a refuge, and more words, and more lies, and more cacophony, noise, more senseless noise, even to go to sleep by, I suppose, but this noise that can confuse the soul. And you can imagine the temptation here. Words, and David's in the cave, and yeah, I don't know. I've been anointed by Samuel, and this all was, and, and I don't know if this is real now, because look what's happening. It's all backwards the way I would have thought, and that I mused while I was a shepherd of sheep as a young man. God is my shepherd, isn't he? Where's the shepherding? 
And I haven't gone astray. I'm simply waiting on the Lord and these men who are following me, to be sure. But Saul has more men. And the mega church down the road has more people. And broad evangelicalism has lots of more people. And here we are in a cave, as it were. This is far from a cave. There's windows in it. By a stream. Pastoral setting. David's in the pits, in the cave. And he's not spelunking, just exploring for fun. He's there, and he's in desperation. There is these calamities then. And if you don't know of them, beloved, it's, it's really too bad. <laughs> really is. You should know something of the battle to be a Christian. We don't wish it upon ourselves, but Jesus says, in the world you will have much tribulation. And it's not just by being a man or a woman or a child. For men and women and children are born unto evil, Job says, as the sparks fly upward. That's a result of this fallen world, this place of dying and death and disease. But it's because we're Christian that we suffer, or ought to, for standing up for truth once. In whatever arena, political, economic, No, we're not going to do that business that way. It's shady. It's a lie. In the home, and by the way, standing and pointing people to something more than the beautiful creation, pointing them to the beautiful God. By our words and by our deeds. If we would, we'd we'd know that our enemies are not just out there, but they're within We have this old nature, this depraved old nature that is is still bucking it, bucking Christ, resisting and asserting itself and saying, yes, but I said it, therefore I'm right, posturing in all the ways we can assert ourselves. So our fear is, or our, our, the calamities and destructions and, and evils are from without and from within. And Beloved, the saying has been turned into a maxim, a kind of proverb. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. That's almost true. The psalmist here says calamities are to be feared. He's crying out for mercy in them. But fear itself is something to be, to wrestle with as a problem, a reaction to calamities. See, the calamities and tough things for being a Christian aren't the only hard things. It's how we react to them. Fear can be one way we react badly. Now, you should be afraid of a hot stove and Children have to learn the hard way sometimes by touching it, and you avoid it. And David here is in the cave avoiding the enemies. He's not running into the spears, but 
There's a fear that can incapacitate us, make us incapable of responding correctly to the calamities. And then so we add to the calamities, the calamity and the destructive force of this fear, this anxiety, which can easily lead to depression and sadness and forgetting the word of God and courage and Jesus and everything that the gospel says makes it so that we need not fear. Jesus warns against fear in the Sermon on the Mount. Be not anxious for this and that. Look at the birds. They, they know where their food's coming from. They don't go about fear, providing for their young and so on. How much more you, a child of God, should not fear. And there's some ten reasons, by the way, not to fear in Matthew 6, I believe it is. Look them up. Review them. All the reasons Jesus gives not to fear. One of them is, sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. That is, we fear tomorrow. Now, how silly of us is that? David could fear that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow would be another thing and the same thing, and he'd never get to the throne and so on. And we can fear this and that and that. And the other thing about tomorrow, and it hasn't even come. It's not here yet. It's not reality. So what does that mean? When we fear, by and large, we're fearing nothing. Zero. Tomorrow's not here. Why are you thinking about that in the pew or in the pulpit? It's not here. See, we're so little in the moment, aren't we? And really, it's we're so little in God. Now, I believe that the calamities themselves and fear itself are real for David and for us. But there's another thing, another thing. And I want you to really think about this, beloved. The calamity and the destruction and the, that there was a real threat to David as well as his own soul. It's exacerbated by the fact, that's a big word that means it was made enlarged by the fact that there was a temptation at this time. The temptation was this, to kill off the destructive forces by his own sword. That's what the temptation was to David in Psalm, in Psalm uh, 1 Samuel 24. The men of David said to him, he's in the cave and his men are cowering in the cave and Saul went to the restroom. The Bible's real. talks about that stuff too. And the men whisper, now you got him. Look. And the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. The men there were whispering, David, kill your rival. Show yourself a man. Show yourself the right king. Show that you believe in God now. This is an opportunity. And David resists it. Well, almost. He cuts off a bit of the skirt. To prove to Saul that he had him in his hand and so on. 
But David resists it, and he says, he says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. Saul got out of the cave and went his way. I find here, beloved, something intriguing, something the very heart of the gospel. David must wait on the Lord for the greatest calamity would he would be that he resisted the will of God and did not endure the suffering that God himself was bringing on for him. There's something in this, these years of humiliation that David has to learn to be the anointed and glorified king in Israel. And beloved, this is exactly what Jesus had to learn. Obedience, Hebrews says. Jesus had to learn obedience. By the things that he what? He suffered. He suffered. And he couldn't just say, no, I'm not going to go that way. In his humanity now, Jesus. That's what the devil wanted him to do. Three temptations in the wilderness. Hey, you can have the kingdom without a cross. Hey, you can do this and that. The devil's always saying, hey, he's calling our attention himself, making it appealing. Turn rocks into bread and jump from the, the temple. Have glory, but you see, the way of Jesus was in glorious glory. That is, it was suffering, blood. And that's the way of God for Jesus. And the psalmist here is showing that he respects that way as an image bearer of Christ, as a picture of the king of kings who will endure suffering and it will be for the sake of the people. And he won't listen now to the words of his own men, which are tempters. There's the war of words. David, let's go. You're going to risk the morale of the troops if you don't take advantage now. And fight like they're fighting with a sword. David waits. What? The heart of the gospel here. Christ waits. In the garden, it's a struggle. There's the cup. If it be possible, he says, let this cup pass from me. The cup of what? Suffering. The cup of the way of the the, the shame and the bitter dregs having to drink it so that he experienced the wrath of God for all his own. What? What a thing to avoid and at which human flesh cringes this, this prospect of being cast outside the fellowship of God. But Jesus resisted the easy way. The crossless way. And David resisted the crossless way, the Christless way, waiting on God. Now, this is his psalm in a cave. And this is exactly, beloved, what our song has to be. It's a psalm by the cross. That's what it is. All our psalms that we're going to consider 
this summer. All you ever read, you read in light of that cross. And in light of your being near to that cross, that's the gospel. Knowing forgiveness, knowing that Jesus died for you and he didn't say, no, there's a better way. Beloved, there's no better way. No better way. And no better way for you. None. None whatsoever. Because if we would believe in Jesus, we bear a cross. Bear a cross. And you don't try a shortcut to heaven. Let's go to what happened here. There's those calamities. The calamities themselves, the fear, and the temptation to take a shortcut. So he's out of the cave in the morning, wearing the crown in the evening, in the courtyard, in the court. What a prospect. Resisted it. Well, how did, how did David get out of it? How, what, what happened here? Well, beloved, God worked faith in him. That's what happened through this circumstance. And the first thing that, and I was just going to go through here a little bit. First thing he does is say, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. Here's the publican. My soul trusts in you in the shadow of your wings. I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. Let's linger on that a minute. It's about faith, though faith isn't mentioned here. The word trust is faith. He's having faith. He's very humble. He realizes he cannot do this himself. He cannot get out of this cave honorably or even dishonorably without God. God wouldn't be with him if it was dishonorable. He needs God. So he calls on God, whom he knows is the God of mercy, which is love to the needy. That's mercy. Love is the broader category. Mercy is a a subset of love. Pity is another subset of love. Long-suffering, but it's all under love, this love that God has for his own in Christ Jesus, in whom he ever sees them and you. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And note this, he's in the cave, but he says, I'm not trusting in the cave. That's not my refuge. But in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge. Think of that. There's two things, two problems, as one has noted, with us. When it comes to trusting, we trust in ourselves and our merit. That's always a problem. Problem with the Pharisee. The publican's over here, no merit. Pharisee's over here and says, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I am. I'm pretty good. No merit. The other problem is means. We trust in means. So David could have gone into the cave. Could have hollowed out. I'd always think of this. This is where my imagination goes. Hide in the cave, not only, but he could scratch out another cave behind a cave, and he'd have the secret cave within the cave, and all these ways of hiding that children come up with. And, but David's not trusting in a cave. He's in a cave. He's using the means, but he's trusting in God. Look, he's in a cave. 
But he says, under the shadow of your wings, I'll make my refuge. That's the, the refuge. You understand it? So apply it. It's not our finances. Though we save up as we can. Save up for a rainy day, and that's not fearing the future. That's planning ahead like the ants do. We don't trust in the medical profession and medicine and doctors and all of that. It's very concerning to us, our health. But, and we go to the doctors and so on, but we trust in God, right? We don't trust in anything of ourselves and our metal and our resources, our parents. We trust in God, though we are thankful for the means and for the, the medicine and the parents and, and all these things. Look at this. This is what faith does. Faith trusts in God and cries out to him for mercy. And notice how this faith crying out to God is definitely and deliberately saying, I'm rising up above this circumstance. I'm rising up, and I can't go any further, but the faith that I have that's rising up to God and even claiming him as the most high God, I will cry out to God most high. You see, there's something that faith does. It sees beyond the circumstances to the God of circumstances, good or evil, who's over all, who's God. Faith. You have faith? Do I have faith? Rising above what you can see, whether it looks good to you or bad to you. Rising above the calamities, rising above your own resources, rising above prosperity, which is probably the hardest thing. We get mired down in all the stuff we have, and we want more of it. Faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That would be the God not seen and who's hoped for and who's above Known in Jesus Christ to be revealed in this earth, faith which is in God is in him. And his word and trusting the word of our world. This is a word to our world. And by the way, on the 4th of July, great opportunity. The seasons in which men celebrate things they have in common. To bring the word of God to bear upon the celebration and at the parade and in the midst of the fireworks, shining into our world and speaking of the great independence, well, liberty we have in Jesus Christ, which makes us God-dependent and glad and holy, celebrating eternal things. David, by faith, knew that the way is narrow and also the way is long. Jesus says, broads the way to destruction, narrows the way to heaven. Did you ever think that it also means that it's the long way? Long way. Israel had to go the long way to Canaan. We have to go the long way to heaven. At least to us it seems like that, doesn't it? We have to wait and wait and wait on God. And then we, we want to go that way as a shortcut. And God says, no, back, start over. Start that building project over. It wasn't square. Do this and that. Start again in this and that and the other thing you're doing. And, and now follow me and follow close. And it's a long way. And it's all these decisions that we have to make. But 
God's leading us so that we don't say, well, Christianity is about the sovereignty of God and nothing at all about the responsibility of man. It's about the predestination of God and the choice of God, but has nothing to do at all with our making choices, even though Joshua says, choose you this day whom you shall serve. And that's what God says to us every day. All in his mercy. So faith rises up. And thank God Jesus had his faith. That God would send from heaven and save him. That God would not leave his soul in hell. His flesh to suffer corruption. He will not leave you in the cave he will not lead you, uh, leave you in the midst of the calamities and so that it's impossible for you ever to escape and to behold your God and to enjoy salvation and fellowship with him. And one day you believe he will come and that just at the right time to take you to heaven. Now whether that's Jesus coming again before you die or you're dying and you're going to heaven, it's all good, beloved, it's all good. For the psalmist himself knew that when he said, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs for me. I have these two words in italics, who performs all things for me. Leave him out. You get the power of it. To God who performs for me. He works for me. Amazing. Romans eight twenty eight in Psalm 57. God works all things for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. This is what faith is doing here. Faith is singing in the cave. Singing in the rain, singing in the cave, singing in the pit. Singing to God. Having a vibrant relationship with God in the cave. Understanding that the way of the wicked is evil and they themselves are digging their own pit and their own grave. And rising up to say these things, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast, I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory, my tongue, awake lute and harp, I will awaken the dawn. That means I'll get up before dawn. And I'm going to not lose any opportunity to serve God and to praise him today. Finally, beloved, it leads to this. And this is the refrain of this psalm. This wonderful God of ours, he leads us to aim for his praise and then to praise. Verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be above all the earth. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Verse 11, let your glory be above all the earth. There's a verse to memorize, children. And you got two verses memorized because they say the same thing. But that's really what all the scripture is about, isn't it? In all of our life. In a cave led to the cross. From the cross led to heaven. Singing. Now sing on, beloved. Sing on. We have a great song to sing and a great God to praise. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for loving us so. Would you give us a song even in the caves of our life in the hard times? You give us joy 
You give us to know forgiveness. You give us to know Jesus in everything. That his suffering was not in vain, nor shall ours be. For you're working for us. You're, you're a great God who is ministered to us. And you cater to our needs as a father pities his child and his children, little boys and little girls. You cater to our needs as a shepherd of sheep and as a hen to chicks. You are the God who covers us. You love us. And oh, Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. So here we are singing, Lord, the people of the Exodus, with a great song of your praise in our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.